Okay, I actually got a few requests to discuss this parsha because this is the rarest haftarah read. Uh, it's haftarah Miketz when Miketz is not Shabbat Chanukah. And we read it last in 1999, then we read it again in 2020, but everybody forgot we read it in 2020 because it was COVID. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and now three years later we're reading it. I don't know when the next time we're reading it is. Maybe somebody can do the research. But it's been quite a long time because Shabbat Chanukah is almost always Miketz. Sometimes it's Vayeshev and Miketz. But um, to have Miketz as it is this year, uh, the day after Chanukah is over, and so it gets its own Haftarah, is, is unusual. And uh, the Haftarah that that is commonly practiced for Miketz, not Chanukah, is from the third chapter of Sefer Malachim. It's really the second half of the chapter. And it is the story of the demonstration of Shlomo's great wisdom. Now, before going into analysis of the story, uh, we also have to ask the question, what is the propriety of this haftarah for this parasha? Uh, we have to remember that the selection of haftarot, for the most part, was not hardwired in the times of, the, of Chazal. Uh, there were a few haftarot that were already mentioned in the Mishnah, and the Tosefta, particularly in the context of Chagim, um, and um, also a little bit of the the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av, although it was a slightly different haftarah than we do. It was a half of it, a part of it. Um, Rosh Chodesh Av was on Shabbat. There was a, a, a Chazon, and it was slightly different than what we do. But most of the Haftarot were open game. And the idea was in Bavel to take a passage from the Nevi'im that approximated the theme of the Kriyat Torah, And in Eretz Yisrael, the Minhag was to take a passage from the Nevi'im. Your choice, there were certain rules, how much you had to read, how to, not to end or begin with something particularly dastardly or upsetting. Um, and, uh, and in Eretz Yisrael, the, the approach was to take something where the first key word in the Haftarah was the same as the first key word in the Kriya. Right? So as a result of that, we, we, we by the way, have from the Geniza, we have a, a list of the Haftarot practiced in Israel. What happened is over the course of the next few hundred years after the completion of the Gemara, if you can call it that, uh, up until really the end of the millennium, there solidified practices of reading Haftarot associated with certain uh, with certain Shabbatot, uh, but because it started developing then and did not really become solid until uh, the late Middle Ages, as a result of that, as we all know, there are multiple minhagim in several weeks, where if you take a look at it, it said the Sephardim say this, and the Italians say that, and uh, the Temanim say this, and Ashkenazim that, to the point where sometimes people get confused, and I have heard somebody who was up there reading the Haftarah and uh, at the end of it said, because that's what it said in the book. And he <laughs> kind of flustered. So um, we're familiar with that. However, this, as far as I know, is pretty much across the board the common custom in that, again, rarest of circumstances when Miketz is not Shabbat Chanukah. And it is the story of Shlomo and the famous story with the two women. Um, why is it that the Haftarah for this Shabbat? So the obvious answer is because the Parshat Miketz 
the beginning of Miketz, and not just the very beginning, the meaning the whole first section of Miketz is about Yosef's wisdom and Yosef's ability not only to interpret dreams, which is one thing, but also to give sage advice and position himself to hoist himself out of the position of prisoner via not only his interpretation, but making himself a necessary cog for the solution. And of course, it all works, and the result of that is we end up in Shibud Mitzrayim, but we'll leave that part alone. And so, in the same way, Shlomo's great wisdom to lead the people is exemplified in this story. Uh, there is yet another connection, which is more subtle, but maybe also a significant piece of it. As we all know the story, this the story is not new to anybody, um, the real mother, when push comes to shove, or when blade comes to cut, if you will, and Shlomo rules that the baby be cut in half, um, and she says, rather, give the baby to the other mother and don't kill him, the phrase used in the text is right here, ki nichmeru rachameha, albina. Right, you see it um, here in... Uh, in Pasuk Chavav, uh, in the middle of the screen, she was overwhelmed with compassion for her son, and therefore she said, don't kill him. And that's a phrase that shows up rarely in Tanakh, but it shows up in our parasha when Yosef encounters Binyamin for the first time when he's pretending still not to be Yosef. And uh, we have to remember that also in our story here, somebody is pretending not to be who they are. And the same story with the same thing with Yosef. So there are a number of tie-ins that connect the story of these two women and the stories and the storyline <laughs> in Pashat Miketz. But here's the Haftarah. So the background of the Haftarah is the first half of, of Parak Gimel, which we'll just go through quickly. We have to remember the background. David, when Sefer Malachim opens up, David is old, cold, and dying. And there is an attempt by Adoniyahu, and it is not the first attempt by one of David's sons to take over the throne. He does it in a more, shall we say, less unacceptable way, if we could say it that way, than uh, Avshalom did. But nonetheless, Adoniyahu, who is the eldest remaining son, uh, tries to take over uh, and announce himself as the king, as David seems to be out of it, and uh, has a whole host of David's close advisors uh, who join him, Evdyatar is an example, uh, and, uh, and, um, they, and they join him in his declaring himself to be king. And that's when this famous move with Natan Hanavi and Bathsheba working a one-two Punch sort of coming into David and getting David to declare on the spot and name Shlomo, not as crown prince, but as the king while he's alive. And that's sort of the end of Adoniyahu's attempt. And the next chapter is David's deathbed uh, ethical will, if you will, but it's really a, a putting matters in order and taking care of certain people that David didn't take care of in his life, like Shimi and like Yoav, and uh, it's kind of bloody. And the rest of Perak Bet is devoted to, to, to Shlomo really setting himself up as king and making lots of moves, which we look at today and we would be very upset by, 
because they essentially involve killing people and getting all of the competition out of the way or anybody who sided with the other the other flank out of the way. And then he is firmly established as a king. And then we find the following. And at the very beginning of this, there are seeds of trouble. And the trouble will only flourish in Perakut Aleph uh, with Shlomo. But for right here, Vaitchaten Shlomo at Paro Melech Mitzrayim, so David, Shlomo marries Bat Paro. The reason this is, of course, difficult is because that establishes a relationship with Mitzrayim, which eventually will lead to Shlomo going to Mitzrayim to get horses and to fill his stables, and that's one of the things the king's not allowed to do. We'll leave that for some other time when we study Perak Yudalah. So this is clearly being written from a much later perspective of a built mikdash and a prohibition against bamot, which means high places, in other words, alternative worship sites. And the idea is everything's okay, except for the fact that there's still bamot because there's no beta mikdash yet. Okay, beautiful. And now, And again, even though there is no really real alternative and there's no prohibition against this, the Bamot are still seen as kind of a, 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 a not a red mark, but sort of a, a pink mark on Shlomo's record. Shlomo is devoted to God, just the Bamot he continues to offer. And now he goes to one of the Bamot, You know where Givon is? It's near Givat Za'ev, for those of you know. So he goes to the big Bama, which is where the communal worship had happened. This is the discussion in Masachat Zvachim and a little bit in Masachat Begilah, Bamagdola versus Bamaktana. Bamaktana being more a private one. Bamagdola is like the central Bama that they used between the destruction of Shiloh and the building of Shalayim. Elif Olot Yalesh Lomo Olam is Be'achuhu. He brought a thousand Olot. Begivon Niradunay Shlomo Bachalom Halayla. And now he's in Givon, he's bringing the Korban out, and then he has a dream, and Hashem appears to him. Vayom Elohim Shalma Etenlach. And if you look at it, there's kind of a quid pro quo. You've just given me a thousand korbanot. What do you want me to give you? Right? And what's, what's Shlomo's answer in his vision? Vayomer Shlomo. Now this, of course, is difficult because how do you speak in a vision? But we'll leave that to the more Nebuchim and, and others who will explain how Nebuchim works. I have no idea. Now notice how he says it. You were very kind to David because he was also very loyal to you. And the great thing you did for him was to give him a son on his throne. Because remember, going all the way back to Shmuel Bet Perak Zion, when David wanted to build a Mikdash, what was Hashem's answers to him? His answer was, first, I will build your house, then you will build my house. How do I build your house? You have to die and have a son sitting on the throne. That establishes forever a dynasty. The fact that the king dies and his son sits on the throne, unlike Shaul, and unlike any of the Shoftim, um, uh, therefore, that is what happened, and then he will build my house. And here, Shlomo presents himself with overwhelming humility, if such a oxymoron can be stated, um, and 
that he says, here I am like a nothing, I'm a young kid, I don't really understand anything, and I'm the one who's sitting on the throne. I'm Rav Asher Loi Manev Loi Safer Mirov. I have this huge nation, and I'm the king of them, and I'm I'm a nothing, I know nothing. So he says, So I want you to give me a heart that can discern. Remember, heart in Tanakh is not about emotion, it's about intellect. I want you to give me a heart that will understand, will listen, and be able to judge your people, to distinguish between good and evil. And he goes on to say how, how critical that is. And God was very happy that that's what Shlomo asked for, given his one bakasha. You didn't ask for any of the other things that kings usually ask for. That is the monkey's paw. You didn't ask for any of that. But rather you asked for a heart that can discern ability to judge properly. So I am going to do that. But asiti kidvarecha actually makes it sound done. Now you have that heart. Now you have that ability. And you will be unsurpassed by anyone in your in your wisdom. And by the way, I'm giving you all the other stuff too. Uh, wealth, etc., etc. Okay, by Kach So Shlomo wakes up and behold, it's a dream, which is yet another connection with Parshat Miketz, although this one sounds more like Yaakov at Beitel, he wakes up and behold, it's a dream. So now remember, David had brought the Aron to Shalim and set up a tent over it, and now uh, Shlomo goes to that tent, there's a Mizbeach there, brings Korbanot and a big party, and here we go, here's our story. Now we all know the story, but we're going to read it carefully. So two women come before the king, and the text goes out of the way to identify them as prostitutes. One of them says, Now, Adoni is a proper introductory phrase before a king. We see it when, uh, when uh, Abigail talks to David. Uh, we talk, see it when Yehuda talks to Yosef, not knowing it's Yosef. Adoni. We literally um, beg pardon. She says, me and this other woman, or this other woman and I, if she spoke proper English, are live, or we're living in one house. And I gave birth along with her in the house. And now she fills in the gap. On the third day, when I after I gave birth, she also gave birth. So the broad story is we both gave birth. The details are I gave birth first, she gave birth three days later. The two of us are together, which she already said, there's nobody else in the house. Okay? And she repeats it, it's just the two of us in the house. Now, at this point, a methodological point of reading narrative. In much of narrative in Tanakh, we have dialogue. And you have a story, and in the story, people talk. By the way, Parshat Miketz and Vayigash are replete with dialogue. 
with the, the, the Yehuda's speech before Yosef, but the brother's speech before Yosef, when they don't know he's Yosef, and Yosef's confession and revelation to the brothers. Lots of dialogue. Dialogue works in two ways. One is you read a paraphrase and, or a translation. So, for instance, all of the dialogue between Yaakov and Lavan, we assume, is a paraphrase or a translation, because Lavan's not talking Hebrew. For sure, when Moshe and Paro were speaking, we're not reading a literal transcription of what was said, but rather a translation or an approximation of it. Sometimes, though, we will have exact words of what was said. Now, how can you tell? You can't always tell, but here you'll be able to tell, as you'll see. And she says the following, Vayamot ben Laila, the other woman, now we're just going to call this one A, we don't know who's who, A is the one speaking, she is the only one speaking so far, and says, Vayamot ben Laila, the son of B died at night, Asher shachva alav, she lay on him, she smothered him. What does that mean? It sounds like, and the way most people kind of vaguely remember the story is, She's claiming that this mother, Nebuch, turned over in her sleep and by accident killed her kid. And now, Vatako, Metochalayla, and this woman, and again, the, in, the, in the conventional or common way of reading it, this woman is so distraught what she did. She went and took my son from me. I was sleeping. And she took my son and put her in her arms. And she put her dead son in my arms. I got up in the morning to nurse my son. He was dead. Then I looked when it was lighter. I looked carefully. I saw it wasn't my son. I realized what happened. And so I put two and two together. Her son died. She wanted a son. So she pulled the swap. Now B speaks up. She says, no. My son is the living son, the one I've got with me, is my son. And the dead son is the one that was yours. None of that happened. In other words, your son died, and now you're trying to swap. So I divided them. I highlighted A's speech in yellow and B's speech in red text. Now that phrase is critical for understanding what's going on. means, and they spoke before the king, which means they said other things, they added other things, they pled, whatever they did. What that does is it sheds light on the earlier quotes as making them real quotes. In other words, they said X, they said Y, they said Z, and then they talked, which means the end they talked is filler. It's not filler, but it's not represented here in words which means the words that are represented are actually their words. And then we have to go back and say, well, why does the text record these specific words? And we have to look further back, and why does the text identify them as zonot, which, if you think about it, is irrelevant to the issue. Let's say that they were both uh, married women, right? Married women, and their husbands... Uh, were off at a war. Their, off, their husbands were traveling. Their husbands had, been, had died. They were widows. And then each came with a claim. The same situation would apply. So why identify them as Zonot? 
But also take a look at the words that they use. We'll see if that'll be a clue for Shlomo. Now notice what the king does. He does something very strange. And now, by the way, he's pointing to B, because that's what B said. Notice that in B's words are the inverse of A's words, and Shlomo repeats that. Shlomo doesn't say, I don't say each one of woman is claiming that the living kid is hers. He, re- he replicates their words exactly following the order. One of them, that's B, says, B'ni hachayu b'nei chamet. And he says, and the other one, that's A, says, B'nei chametu b'nei achay. So B mentions the living kid first being hers, and then the dead kid being the others, and A flips that. Okay? And now the rest of this we all know. So the king says, bring a sword. They bring a sword. Cut the living kid in half. So you give each one a half. This is just kidding. All right, this is clearly a, a, a ridiculous solution because, as a solution, because it just means you're going to have another dead kid. But Shlomo's pretending to be, shall we say, uh, super moronic and say, I got a great idea. Let's give each of you half a kid. Now, Shlomo obviously is not super moronic. And we all know what's going on here. He's trying to make sure that the he's, that he'll flush out the real mother because she'll say, I want my kid to live, even if he lives with the wrong mother. And that's, of course, how it plays out. So the real mother speaks up, and again, her compassion overwhelms her for her son. And she says, Be Aduni, pay attention to those words, give her the living kid, don't kill him. Okay. Now, what should the other woman say at that point? At that point, when the woman who we know is the real mother, but only we know that, and she knows that, says, you know what, don't kill the kid, give him to the other woman. What should the the other woman, who's the fake, what should she say at that point? You're right. She should say nothing. Great. She should say nothing. I, I, I won. And I get the kid. And now I get to raise a beautiful child. Not mine, but I'll pretend he's mine. Fine. <laughs> Instead, what happens? Vizoto merit. Gamli gamlach lo She says, you know what? It shouldn't be mine. shouldn't be yours. Kill him. Now, the rest is... Piece of cake. Shlomo says, give the A, give the that woman, the woman who had compassion, and and uh, give her the kid, because that's she's the real mother. And he doesn't do anything to the other mother. We don't hear about that. So how did Shlomo know? Now, remember, Shlomo obviously is bluffing. There's no question. He's not going to kill the kid. Shlomo's bluffing. But you know the rule of bluffing. It's true in war. It's true in poker. It's true everywhere. You can only bluff when you know what the answer is going to be. Especially when the stakes are this high with a life. So how did Shlomo know that that was going to be the response? Now, by the way, the way that most people remember the story is inverted. They remember the fake woman saying, 
um, okay, cut them in half. And then the, the, the proper mother coming, the real mother coming and saying, no, 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 don't kill them. That's a little bit more reasonable. What's super unreasonable is after the proper mother said, don't kill him, then the fake mother says, no, no, cut him in half. And Shlomo had to know she was going to say that. She was going to reveal her hand. Because think about this. Let's play it out differently. Let's say that the real mother says, you know what, don't cut him in half, let him live. And the other woman, to try to prove she's the real mother, says, no, 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 give her to her rather than cut him in half. And then we're back, basically back at square one. Which means Shlomo had to know that the second that this woman, who's in red here, B, was going to say kill him. How did he know that? So I've shared with you here um, two solutions. One which even Shuat and Shuaf and uh, and uh, the Meiri uh, suggest, and um, a friend of mine um, twenty plus years ago. Uh, somebody I've never met, an internet friend, um, made this suggestion. He shared it, um, I, I think it was on the time that we read uh, Mikates in 1999, maybe. He shared it, um, and uh, you can read it here in the source in the sources. The Malbim has a different solution, but I'd like to share a solution which I think comes from the text itself without any external information. The Malbim solution is based on an intricate read of the laws of Yibum, as you could see. It's ingenious, but it doesn't make the point, because all, the only thing that you would get out of it, if that was true, was that Shlomo knew Hilchot Yibum. Right? And it doesn't really make the point that we're trying to, to bring out here. That Shlomo has this great sense of justice and of right and wrong, and is able to intuit, in a case, who's telling the truth. So let's go back and see what the text actually tells us. First of all, these women are zonot. Why is that critical? Because imagine a zona with a baby. There is no bigger obstacle to making a living than a zona with a baby. Right? Think about that. Now, what does woman A come and say? She says, me and this woman are alone in the house. There are no strangers there. I gave birth to my kid. Three days later, she gave birth to her kid. And we are alone. There's nobody else in the house. What's she describing to Shlomo in kind of delicate terms? Business is very bad, or shall we say business is non-existent, because nobody's going to go visit a zona with a baby crying there. And so now, next thing, notice what woman A says. Her baby died because she lay on him. But in the next breath, she says, and then she replaced the babies and put one with me because I was asleep. Well, if you're asleep, how do you know she lay on him? The answer is she's not describing what happened. She's making a claim. What's her claim? That the other mother deliberately smothered her baby. That's her claim. She deliberately smothered her baby because she couldn't do business. And then what did she do? She swapped babies, and what does she intend to do? In a few nights, she's going to do the same thing to mine. Why didn't she do it the same night? Because it would look way too suspicious for two babies of two mothers to both die in the same way in one night. So she figured she'll take my baby and a few days later she'll kill him. That's what that's her claim. Notice how Shlomo listens to them. The other woman who we're identifying as B, 
says, B'ni hachai uvnei chameit. I'm going to make a claim which is the counter of the Malbim, which is that when a person presents a claim, what they want is the last words they say before the king, before the judge, to be the main purpose of their claim. B is saying, B'ni hachai uvnei chameit. Because her main interest is the dead kid. She wants the kid dead. And what is the other woman, the one we're identifying as A, who we're ultimately identifying as being the real mother, says, Her real interest is in her living kid. So that's what comes second. Now, one last piece to the puzzle. How do I know that A is the real mother? Because I color-coded it that way, but how did I know that? The answer is as follows. Remember, we look back at this in the methodology that I suggested is that when you have a phrase, meaning, and they spoke in front of the king, tells you that the rest of the words that are mentioned are actual quotes. They're not just paraphrasing, they're actual quotes. And then besides that, they said stuff. What was the first thing that the that that A said to the king? She used the phrase be aduni. Which, by the way, is what you would say before a king, but we don't need to quote it every time. Notice what happens down here when she pleads to not kill him. We know that's the real mother. She says, be Adoni. It says, if the text is telling us, this woman down here, in Pasuk Chavad, who who is identified as the real mother, and says, please don't kill him, let him him go with the other one, is the same woman who spoke first, be Adoni, uses the same phrase. And she's the one who gives this description, and she's the one who makes the claim that the other woman killed her child intentionally, and now she has mind to kill him. Shlomo repeats that. Notice. Shlomo repeats their words and says it in the order that they said. This one says, this one says, B'ni Achai U'b'nei and this one says, He quotes that. Which means he's picking up on that difference. And he recognizes right away that the woman who said, is the liar. So what does he do? He knows that the other woman wants the kid dead. So he says, okay, we'll cut the kid in half. The real mother, of course, knows that I have two choices. Either my kid is killed right now by the king and that's it, or else... He's given to the other woman, and I, maybe I'll have another day to sneak him away, run away with him, something. So she takes her chance and says, give it to her. In the meantime, the fake mother has a great opportunity. If I have to kill the kid, I don't want to want to kill the kid, but I have to kill the kid. I feel like I have to. Now the king's going to do it for me. That's great. And what does she say? Zoru, cut him in half. And Shlomo reveals who's who. Shlomo listens carefully. He listens to the way they present their arguments. He listens to what the woman, the real mother, says about how the first kid died and can realize she's not making a supposition about how he died. She's making a claim. She's not testifying that that the other mother rolled on her. She's making a claim. She deliberately smothered her kid, and that's why she stresses the fact we're alone in the house. There's nobody with us. We're zonot. I mean, the text tells us that. And that's how Shlomo sees it. And this way of reading the story gives us an understanding of the greatness of Shlomo's intuition in understanding 
um, uh, listening to people and gathering what really happened and then being able to properly judge the case. So we see great, the great intuition and understanding as we see it on Yosef's part in listening to Pharaoh and as we see it uh, here in the story with Shlomo HaChacham Mikol HaAdam.